CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So Rich, before we get this podcast on the road, it's time to talk about something that is near and dear to both of us, and that is great audio. So important. It's a hallmark of this podcast. We really try to give the highest fidelity audio we possibly can to the listener. Yeah, absolutely. And Cobuzz. Have you heard about Cobuzz yet? Have you heard the buzz about Cobuzz? I've just heard about Cobuzz recently. Cobuzz is the new high-res music streaming and download service. It's spelled Q-O-B-U-Z. It is a premium music experience with over 200,000 albums in 24-bit high-res audio quality and the rest of the 40 million track catalog in lossless CD quality. Now, as an audiophile like me, you know what that means. Yeah, that means that it's not going to sound all squashed like a terrible MP3. Exactly. You get all the credits, digital booklets, original reviews and articles. And of course, you can listen at home or on that mobile thingy of yours. Right on. But, but here's the big thing. The level of quality and convenience. This is for die-hard music fans. People like you and me and people who listen to this podcast. They're going to dig it and they can check it out for a month free. You go here to sign up, cobuzz.com, that's Q-O-B-U-Z.com. Ladies and gentlemen, record geeks, retired plate spinners, and millennials who want to impress their parents with their record collections, welcome to the RhinoCast podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Get ready for new releases, deep tracks, and conversations with your favorite artists and bands, and balloons for the kiddies. And now, your hosts with the most, Rich Mahan and Dennis the Menace. On this episode of the Rhino Podcast, we dive deep into the history of Cream Magazine with J.J. Kramer, son of Barry Kramer, one of the founders of this venerable rock publication. Hey, Rich. Hey, Dennis. Once again, you know what I'm doing right now? I'm on rhino.com. And you know why? Because you go there every day for the album of the day, latest music news, releases, contests, any kind of cool, classic information that you need, you can get it there. Get out of my head, Rich. Don't forget to sign up for the Rhino email list, too, because you get great information about upcoming releases and contests. So take care of yourself and subscribe today. This is another one. I, I, we, we say this every time, but this Rhino podcast, this podcast is going to take the listeners back to a special moment in time and a very, very special magazine. 
it's a special Rhino podcast. To, let's overuse the word special <laughs> because this is not about a Rhino release. It's about something that was so important to the music community across the whole country from the 60s through the 70s into the 80s. And it's Cream Magazine. We're heavily into rock culture here at this podcast. And Cream was kind of the polar opposite of Rolling Stone. I mean, the journalists alone, Lester Bangs and Dave Marsh and and so many other people thrown into the mix. And we have the son of the founder of Cream Magazine. I should say the co-founder, J.J. Kramer. J.J. was kind enough to sit with us and tell us about the behind-the-scenes happenings at Cream and also tell us about the new documentary, Boy Howdy, the story of Cream Magazine. So I don't think there's any time to lose here because there is a lot to listen to in this conversation. Well, boy, howdy, J.J. Kramer. Boy, howdy, gentlemen. We're here to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the founding of Cream Magazine and a documentary that takes us back to a place fueled by all three of the essential nutrients... Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Did you, did you take those this morning, JJ? Breakfast to champions. So in addition to being the impetus behind the new documentary and other things Cream, we're ready to see if we can all imbibe that spirit all these years later. Are you up for it? I'm game. So Cream opened its doors in 69, and Detroit was deep in racial strife and white flight. And there was this space over a record store come head shop in Cass Corridor, which, this is a quote, a decrepit, not me, but a decrepit inner city neighborhood that was a scary place to go to work every day. So I imagine you heard a lot of stories about what it was like to be a, a, a staffer at Cream Magazine and have to get to work. Yeah, I, I heard so many incredible stories about the, the cast corridor back in those days. It was it was scary. In the documentary, a lot of the female staffers who were working there at the time talk about how um, when they would head into work, they would risk getting grabbed on the street on an almost daily basis. So it was very, you know, very much that post-riot, gritty um, and, and sometimes scary environment. Yeah, I imagine after the riots in Detroit that things were a little bit rougher. Like, people are like, man, we've really been through it. This is, you know, it probably was worse on the streets in some respects after the riots. I think so. You know, just hearing um, some of the stories about pre and immediately post-riot, about just living down there and and um, how, in many ways, the police were the biggest gangs in town. It was not necessarily a pleasant place to live, but out of that started to blossom, you know, this, this whole new counterculture. And a lot of, you know, creatives and artists and musicians were kind of, uh, in many ways, either born out of that or sort of propelled themselves out of the ashes of the Detroit riots. What's kind of fascinating is that your dad's co-founder, Tony, his vision, vision in quotes, 
was kind of this erudite blues rock forum, hence the the moniker, you know, and the nod to the supergroup Cream. But he was out within a few issues, right? And next thing you know, there's Dave Marsh as the new editor, who, of course, had no experience. But it's still, that stew helped Cream find its way to what it was about to become. A- absolutely. And those, in those first few issues, you know, it was actually Tony Ray's idea to start this music magazine. And as you said, Tony was a big fan of, of Cream uh, and decided to name the magazine Cream just spelled differently, which was also an FU to Rolling Stone which was founded a year earlier in San Francisco and, and named after the Rolling Stones. So it was kind of poking at them <laughs> just thought about a, a little bit as yeah. well. They very quickly, Tony and my dad, had creative differences over what they thought the magazine should be. You know, Tony wanted it to be this intellectual, academic rag for, for like blues rock aficionados. And my dad was like, no, that's, that's not what it's going to be. It's going to be this slick rock and roll magazine. How did Tony and your dad meet? My understanding is, you know, my dad owned a couple head shops and, and record shops in the Cass Corridor, and Tony worked behind the counter at one of those record stores. So he worked for my dad. He came to bring the idea of the magazine to my dad, and my dad is who helped fund the launch of that. So I think when they, they ran into creative differences, you know, Tony sort of bowed out uh, gracefully of the magazine, and, and my dad continued to run with it. I don't think there was any kind of fight or battle over the future of Cream because at that time it wasn't anything. It was you were a few few issues into an underground newspaper at that point. Boy, head shops yeah. were like the venture capitalists of our time, weren't they? <laughs> right. <laughs> it goes to show you that that maybe the things that fuel us even today are uh, where the money is. Yeah, and those those first few issues were actually published in the basement of one of the head shops. So, you know, doubled as, uh, you know, cream headquarters and a head shop and a record shop. And I'm sure some people slept there as well. So not, not a bad business to be in at that time. So how did Dave Marsh come into the picture, who became the editor after Tony left? So Dave Marsh was writing for the newspaper at uh, Wayne State University, and he was also DJing at the time on WABX, which was a local radio station. And he came to uh, establish a reputation because, and this is as cream lore goes, he played Can't Explain 23 times in a row and got fired. <laughs> got fired for it. I believe that's how my dad discovered him and kind of, uh, you know, at that point, Dave had written a little bit for the Wayne State newspaper, but it by no means was an editor. And my dad kind of went, okay, well, poof, you're an editor. And obviously that was uh, in many ways a stroke of genius because Dave, you know, has, has gone on to be, in my opinion, on the Mount Rushmore of music journalists. And to kind of have that vision early on is, is kind of really a testament to seeing something in a lot of these writers that others probably didn't at the time. It's, it's also well known that your dad and Dave butted heads quite a bit. And 
How important do you think was that push-me-pull-you sort of energy between your dad and Dave to the vibe of the magazine? I think it was critical that that creative friction created this lightning in a bottle type of situation where they got to argue constantly about how many angels can stand on the head of a pin, right? So, yeah, you right. know, so it, they would get into it about everything that had to do with the magazine. And that's because they cared so much about the music. They lived it. They loved it. They fought constantly about it. Many times it wasn't just arguments. It was, it was fistfights. Uh, there's a story. No kidding. Really? Yeah. It got physical. Yeah. There's, there's actually a story in the documentary about my dad and Dave getting into it over a, a cover layout. And, yep. and uh, you know, it went from shouting to them, you know, pushing each other and either Dave or my dad grabbed a broom and then, <laughs> and then yeah. my dad threw a telephone through a coffee table <laughs> and a typewriter out the window and they were on the third floor. <laughs> Mind you. Um, and so in the film, you can actually see there's some great footage walking around Cream's offices in the cast corridor. And on the third floor, when you walk in, you can actually see the typewriter that was thrown out the window. It's like on a pedestal right when you walk into the office. It's almost like this statue, this icon, this monument that they all decided to keep in the office after that happened. So I thought that was pretty cool. You know, Lester Bangs, arguably the most famous writer that wrote for Cream. How did he enter the picture? Yeah, as I understand it, uh, Lester was freelancing for Cream for a while from California. And at, at this point, he was, okay. also, he was also writing for Rolling Stone. And I think that, they, that he had some frustrations around editorial freedoms and, uh. and what he was able to write about, what he couldn't write about, and... The, the folks at Cream had an eye on him for quite some time and finally convinced him to move to Detroit and join the Cream team, which was obviously a huge coup for Cream at that time. And it's very interesting, once Lester got to Detroit, the friction and, and sort of the editorial creative differences between Dave Marsh and Lester Bangs, because they were each, you know, these great, as Real Marcus puts it in in the film, these these moralists, and they wanted to argue about you know how and why to love the thing that they love, but they both had very very different views on it. Dave Marsh had a, a definitely like a, a a big political bent to what he wrote about you know starting back when he was writing about the MC5 and John Sinclair and some of the movements that were going on in Detroit at that time, and so he he believed that the writers at Cream were soldiers in the counterculture army. And then Lester shows up and he turns the place into like this fun house. You know, Lester's whole MO was everybody, we're all bozos on the bus and can't take any of this too seriously, including yourselves. And that sort of tug of war between them created a lot of incredible coverage, but it also resulted in some, some fisticuffs as well. Which is a great segue to being a woman in that environment was certainly interesting. We alluded to it, but what they got out of it, and they talk about this in the documentary, is that they joined in and they learned from the masters and became great journalists themselves. This is one of the amazing themes that's come out of the screenings that we've had and that really seems to be 
resonating with audiences is Cream was this incredible environment for pioneering female journalists. We talk a little bit about like some of the captions in Cream, which were always known to be offensive, <laughs> to say the least, in, in some cases. And, you know, you had the Cream Dream, which was like a almost like a pinup of, you know, different artists. And, you know, the article headlines were many times offensive. And what we learn in the film is that a good deal of those offensive captions were written by the female journalists that were on staff at the time. Exactly. And looking back on, on all of the you know, female journalists like Jan Uhelski or Susan Whitehall, um, you know, to name a couple off the top of my head, the access that they got to these artists and the articles that they wrote were really incredible. One in particular is when Jan Uhelski actually performed on stage in full makeup with Kiss, yeah, which was, you know, this incredible journey into this participatory journalism, this groundbreaking thing that had never been done. And I, you know, I venture to guess that it, anyone other than Jan would not have been able to pull that off. Her way of, you know, getting access to, to the bands and making them and their managers comfortable with the idea and then actually executing it and pulling it off is really incredible. in Detroit and you don't know the music history there, everybody thinks of either L.A. or San Francisco or New York as big music cities, but this documentary really highlights what an important music town Detroit was and continues to be. Yeah, it, it really does. And that was important to us in crafting this story. It's, it's sort of, from our perspective, this is a documentary about three things. It's about a city, a magazine, and, you know, a group of good rock writers gone bad, right? So making it about Detroit and all of the incredible musical influences, whether it's like the early Motown influences, Temp Supreme, Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, you know, you have all those guys. And then you have groups like the MC5 and the Stooges and you have, you know, Ted Nugent and Alice Cooper coming out of there. So it was just this incredible musical sort of fabric in Detroit that a lot of people don't know about and necessarily appreciate. Um, and one of the things I learned making the doc was there was this like really cool relationship between all of the artists. There's like this really cool story that Don Waz tells in the documentary about how Pharaoh Sanders was in town and some guys from his band reached out to the MC5 to see if they wanted to jam together. And they just had this like crazy jam session. And, and Don says that he never had heard music like that before or since. And I thought that was really cool. Wow. And, and Alice Cooper even says how like the Motown acts would go to listen to, you know, the MC5 and other bands and vice versa. So there was like this support going on between the rock acts and the Motown acts, which is just so cool to think about, you know, to have been there must have been absolutely incredible. Yeah. 
So let's talk about some of the features that people looked forward to. And I know I did, you know, every time I got an issue of Cream. And one of my favorites has got to be stars in their cars. It's hard to believe some of the vehicles. And I imagine that uh, you have at least one of your favorites to talk about. This one here it is a, uh, this is the Ramones. And I believe this is, this must be, you know, late seventies here. Um, and they are posing in front of a, uh, what looks like it might have been a uh, Pinto that exploded. Um, of course they are. <laughs> of course they, that is so punk. Yeah. So, you know, the, the funny thing about Star's cars is you had this mixture of, are these the real cars or are they not? Because some of them... Is this a joke? Is this yeah. a joke? You know, you have ones where like you have Devo getting onto a bus or you have, you know, there's another one that Bob Gruen talks about in the film where it's uh, Joe Perry posing in front of like, I think it's like a Corvette or like a really fancy sports car that he wrapped around a parking barrier. And, <laughs> yes, and he, right. just, he just poses in front of it, so it's great. It, it, those were, you know, a lot of fun. You know, just hearing some of the artists talk about that and hearing the photographers talk about what it was like to shoot them is really cool. And one of, one of, the, um, one of the editors, Dave DiMartino, talks about, you know, when they would go to do these shoots, and if they couldn't tell if, like, you know, this was the actual artist's car. They didn't want to necessarily make too much fun of it, you know, because they're <laughs> like, you know, I, I don't know, in, you know, in true Michiganese, you know, a lot of people believe you are your car. So, you know, they wanted to be gentle around, you know, how, how they framed up some of these stars, cars, things. But I mean, some of them were so great. There's there's one in the film that we show where it's Ace Freely sitting on this, like, uh, I think it's like this baby blue Cadillac Seville. It's things badass. Um, so <laughs> it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, which we would think that car, that'd be something that his mom drove or something. You know? <laughs> right, right. Exactly. It just makes it just makes for a great profile. You know, Rolling Stone always came off as this very intellectual, you know, kind of magazine. And what it lacked that Cream had in droves was humor. But yet that humor, what you were just describing, you know, coming up with these ideas and doing the parodies and all of that, that's very intellectual. I mean, that that's right out of Mad Magazine and Harvard Lampoon. And, and these were all done by very, very smart people. And that leads to the, uh, the profile based on the doer's profile and the photographs of, and I do this in quotes, I'm holding the quote marks up, you know, behind the microphone, the boy howdy beer. How many rock and rollers were roosted into believing that was a thing? They showed up there for their boy howdy beer in their profile. Here's the harsh truth. I'm holding up a label. <laughs> Right now, which is uh, it's just essentially a bumper sticker that was wrapped around around. cans to create Boy Howdy (laughs) beer. But a lot of artists, you know, did and readers for that matter, believe that it was like this secret craft brew that was only for like the really big stars. (laughs) Right. Um, But, you know, what what I really loved about it, getting back to your point, is most of the artists were like, you're in on the joke, 
right? Like, you know that this is for fun. You know it's this takedown of the Dewar's profile uh, where Dewar's was, you know, this aspirational scotch, you know, very prestigious, high class. Boy, howdy was the exact opposite of that, right? It was like, <laughs> you know, your, your cheap beer and your path to downward mobility. And, you know, when the artists were kind of in on the joke with it, they had a lot of fun. And that was sort of the, you know, time back to Cream's sense of humor, um, it was this cross between Mad Magazine and Esquire. And so, you know, the, these features, this, the Stars Cars, the Creams Profiles, they were really well thought out. There was a lot of work that went behind that. But when they executed it, it was like you wanted to be talking like a, a snot-nosed kid. And so it's not easy to pull that off. Then one day she hit the Detroit station. Couldn't believe she heard it. How did the culture at the magazine change when the offices moved from inner city Detroit out to the farmhouse and then later to downtown Birmingham, Michigan? I think that those like three chapters of Cream kind of take it from where it started as this underground newspaper, right? And then when they moved to Walt Lake, they started to get their legs, get their traction. It became, went from underground newspaper to regional tastemaker. And then by the time it got to Birmingham, it was a national powerhouse. It was at its pinnacle, it was second in circulation to Rolling Stone. And so, you know, whereas when they started in the Cass Corridor, you know, the office was obviously a disaster. It was it was organized chaos, and I use organized lightly. It was a crash pad. People would sleep there. At that time, my dad was actually managing Mitch Ryder in Detroit, and the 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 offices, Cream's headquarters, also doubled as a rehearsal space for Mitch in Detroit. Wow. And so just imagine trying to put out a magazine with, you know, Mitch in Detroit rehearsing one floor above you. So it was like, it went from that kind of chaos to by the time they got to Birmingham, it was like this, you know, real magazine with desks and job titles and bottom lines that they had to hit and, you know, ads that they had to sell. So it became more of a, an actual business by the time it got to Birmingham. But one of the things that really is amazing is that Cream didn't play favorites when it, again, I'm going to do the quotes, when it came to genres. And even though it started in Detroit with, with Alice Cooper and Grand Funk and the Stooges, it also really became the go-to for punk and new wave. Lester Bang's obviously enamored with Lou Reed. But I mean, David Bowie, Roxy Music, Captain Beefheart, Blondie, Brian Eno, the New York Dolls, how did they, you know, in Detroit, get the buzz on all of these genres that were nowhere near the Midwest and, in fact, you know, nowhere near the heart of Motown? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think it was because Cream's writers uh, and editors weren't afraid to go out and, you know, lift up rocks and see what was under them, so to speak. So, um, just, you know, they were, of course, located in Detroit, but but they traveled well. They traveled to, you know, to New York. They traveled throughout the Midwest. They traveled out, out West as well. And that allowed them to connect with different scenes, which, 
you know, if we take punk, for instance, that Cream was open to exploring, whereas other publications at the time, like Rolling Stone, weren't necessarily ready for punk. But Cream, being what it was, was kind of this like blank canvas for covering things in the margins, so to speak, that were a little bit edgier and a little bit racier. And I think that earned them, you know, a lot of street cred and a lot of respect uh, among not only the fans, but but the artists themselves. I think it was, it all kind of came back to their openness and their willingness to go a different direction that maybe not everybody would be on board with, but they were so passionate about the music and exploring new things that that's really what drove them. I think that one of the most interesting pieces in the film is how I call them grumpy pants, how grumpy pants, Dave Marsh approaches the concept that he came up with the term punk rock. (laughs) Yeah. So, so there is an article in 1971 about question mark and the Mysterians where Dave does indeed use the phrase punk rock. And I believe that prior to that, it had not been used in print. And Webster's Dictionary actually credits Dave with coining that term well before punk rock actually even became a scene. But it's really uh, an amazing scene in the film where Dave kind of talks us through how he came up with punk and and how he used it. And then we we cut to... uh, to Legs McNeil blowing up Dave's spot. Suck it, Dave. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't want to give away too much because it's one of my favorite parts in the film. It's incredible. But but needless to say that Legs has a very different view of the inception of punk rock than Dave does. realized how important the magazine was not only to the fans but the artists themselves with the Joan Jett story about how the magazine reviewed an early Runaways album but she was so upset at the review that she made a trip to the offices to confront the writer and I think that just shows how important the magazine was to her. Absolutely. They took what they read in Cream to heart in many ways. And that, that's one of the things I love about this magazine is it resonated not only with, with the fans, but, but the artists as well. And Rick Johnson, absolutely. Rick Johnson, one of the, the writers, just absolutely trashed, which I believe is the first Runaways album. And again, I won't give this away, but he absolutely destroys it in a not safe for work sort of way. And oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and and Joan shows up to the cream offices and wants to confront Rick about his article and he's not there so she does the next best thing and she writes a response through a letter to the editor which gets published in the magazine's next issue where she just takes him to task. And I won't give that away either, but it's really, it's one of my favorite moments in the film because Joan, and it's not that surprising that if she feels like they're taking a punch, she's going to hit back about 10 times harder. Yeah. I mean, that relationship between the artists and the writers, you know, I don't think you really see that anymore. And that was what made Cream, I think, really, really special was that dynamic between a lot of the the writers and and the artists.
team was so different from Rolling Stone, not only in the way that they presented music and presented artists and presented that part of the culture, but Cream was a rock and roll band unto itself. And when they say they were America's only rock and roll magazine, it's kind of a diss to Rolling Stone, but at the same time saying like, no, we are rock and roll. They are every bit as much of that aesthetic as the drunk rock star on the Learjet. Absolutely. They didn't just write about it. They absolutely 100% lived it, the good, the bad, yes. and the ugly. One of the former editors, Craig Carpell, or former contributing writers, I should say, has this beautiful thing he says in the film. It was not a rock and roll magazine. It was a rock and roll band that was putting out a magazine. It sort of ties back to what you said. It's They were so passionate about the music that they embraced it in every way, shape, or form. They studied it. They talked about it. They fought about it. They went to shows together all the time. They hung out with the bands. They learned about the bands. You know, those were back in the days where you actually had access to the artists. It wasn't like a publicist saying, you've got 10 minutes or a half an hour to talk to this artist. They would be with them for two weeks, three weeks at a time. They'd be on tour. Um, and they connected with the music and the artists in a much different way than exists today. And I think that's what you see when you, when you flip through the pages. Dave Marsh had this quote. Dave said, you'd bleed for it if you had to because some other kid would read that and be freed by it. Do you think that can still happen in today's climate? I think it can still happen, but some things need to change. I think what we see out there is a lot of stuff that's like really productized and really sanitized. And I think if that's the type of editorial and the type of content that's out there, it's going to be really tough for someone to connect with it in a meaningful way. You know, back in the day, I think that there was this really cool ecosystem between the artists, the writers, and the fans. And they were all interconnected. And they each held the other accountable in, in many ways. And that allowed for accountability within the music where it made the music better. And it connected fans to the music in a more meaningful way. And I think that today it's difficult to make that connection because that ecosystem has been disrupted and they aren't holding each other accountable. And I think the music has suffered in a lot of ways uh, because of that. And I think because the music has suffered and because the editorial suffered, people can't necessarily connect with it in the same way. And I'm not saying that people don't love music or love certain bands, but I think it's very different. But to answer your question, yeah, I think I think it's possible. Someone's just got to step out of, break that current cycle right now and not be afraid to maybe say something that's going to offend certain people. I'm not saying of going out there and being, you know, an ass for the sake of being an ass. And obviously it's 2019. There are very different filters now than there were in the seventies, but there is plenty of room to have an actual point of view. And I think that's the first step is being unafraid to have a point of view that some people might disagree with. And that's okay. Lester Bangs, he lived the rock and roll life. And I mean, he was gone too soon at the age of 31. You were four and a half, I believe, when you lost your dad. And I heard you say at South by Southwest that the making of this documentary was as close as you could come to having a cup of coffee with him. Do you feel like you know him better now? 
I do. I feel like this whole process for me was trying to learn about my dad and connect with him in a different way than I had before. I've obviously asked my mom a number of questions over the years, but there's certain things that I either was not necessarily comfortable asking her or things that only other people could tell me based on their interactions with him. You know, it took about four years to make this film and just hearing stories. Everybody had a Barry Kramer story. Um, Some were good, some were bad, some were crazy. It really let me know about the actual person he was. He was this like incredibly complex, flawed genius who had these crazy, powerful, and many times volatile relationships with Almost everybody he came in contact with, what I really found so profound was, and you can see this in the film, there's a number of folks that are still very like emotional about the relationship that they had with my dad. A lot of folks didn't necessarily leave on good terms with him. And then he died and they felt like, I think in many ways, they didn't get to get the last word. And it was pretty incredible. <laughs> oh my. It was like throughout the course of, of making the doc, there were, there were folks that wouldn't participate because they were still mad at my dad. I'm like, all right. I mean, I've been known to hold a grudge, wow. but, but you know, 35 years, you know, <laughs> maybe, maybe it's time to let it go. But, but the good news is that over the course of, you know, whether it's a matter of months or years, we got those people to sit for interviews. And in a lot of ways, it was like really therapeutic, really cathartic for them. I think it brought them some closure and allowed them to say whatever they, they needed to say. Pretty incredible how powerful those relationships were. So yeah, I got to know so much more about him. And it was it was very much like both the good, the bad, the ugly, and the crazy. Which is a great segue to the fact that there is now a cream.com. And we're not going to spread any rumors here, but I'll just say that our world needs this. And we need it because today's blog writing is so damn erudite and self-important. So can we bring back uh, a snot-nosed, torn-pants can of beer, as (laughs) as someone likes to say? (laughs) Yes. Well, uh, uh, we're very happy to have creammag.com up and running now. Right now, we're essentially using it to provide information on the documentary, additional screenings. We also have our merch store up there. If anybody's lacking some boy howdy in their closet, there's a lot of cool stuff there. And the good news is we have a lot of other content that is in the works. And what I've been telling folks at the screenings when they're asking, well, what's next, is that this documentary is not the end by any means. It's it's the beginning. This is by no means the end of the cream story, especially with it being the 50th anniversary. We want to do this celebration right, and there's lots more fun stuff in the works. So go to creammag.com, sign up for our mailing list, and we'll keep you up to date. JJ, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. Boy, howdy, indeed. Boy, howdy. You know, Dennis, after that one, I feel like kicking back and cracking open a frosty boy howdy brew. I have something to tell you, Rich. It's not a real beer. (laughs) 
It was so cool of JJ to tell us all about the documentary and the history of Cream Magazine and all the awesome, you know, we just scratched the surface on some of the great stories that happened surrounding that fabulous rock and roll publication. And rumor has it, there might be more Cream in our future. Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to listen and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss the next Rhino podcast. Executive producer for Rhino Entertainment, John Hughes. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Pop Cult and Rich Mahan Promotions. All rights reserved.